0: Hello and welcome to Fintech Bytes, a podcast series from CMS in which we will discuss and provide insight into some of the latest technology and regulatory developments, market trends and issues affecting fintech and innovation in financial services. Hello and welcome to Fintech Bytes, a podcast series from CMS, where we provide insight into some of the latest developments, market trends and issues in fintech. My name is Dilve Kang. I'm a lawyer in the Financial Services team at CMS London and joining me today are Susan Altkemper of Council in our Financial Services team and J- Yasmin Johal, an Associate in the Financial Services team. In this podcast, we're going to talk about central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. We're going to be looking at what they are, why they're important why they're important now, and what's happening worldwide. So for my first question, Suzanne, please could you help us by explaining what is a CBDC?
1: Hi, Delvia, and hi, hi Yasmin, thank you very much. Um, Yeah, before we delve a bit further into the subject, let me just say a couple of things by way of, of introduction to the topic. Um, As you know, Delvia, there's quite a number of jurisdictions that are currently looking into introducing CBDC or even pioneering CBDC at this point in time. The UK, of course, has also for um, many years been at the forefront of fintech innovation. And so when Rishi Sunak in April of this year announced the creation of the UK's CBDC task force, this was probably in many ways just another step in the same direction. But also, I think it was kind of groundbreaking in that it opened up a structured and detailed debate about the merits of having CBDC in the UK. Clearly, in terms of the Bank of England, once it is prepared to push boundaries here, it is approaching the subject in a very measured and responsible way and has said that an introduction of CBDC in the UK must meet both the Bank of England's objectives and also benefit the UK as a country. Now, when we speak about CBDC in today's podcast, I just want to be very clear that we are simply talking about jurisdictions launching a digital version of their own national currency, and we are not talking about jurisdictions declaring cryptocurrency, such as Bitcoin, as legal tender in their territory, like we've seen with El Salvador. So, to come back to your question, what is central bank digital currency? Put very simply, I would say it is a new type of currency. There is no uniform definition of CBDC, and the term is really capable of covering a number of different concepts. In fact, different models are being looked at across the world. Some are focusing only on the retail market. Others are looking at the wholesale sector and some on specific use cases, such as the facilitation of cross-border payments. But all of these models, I would say, have three common features. The first feature is that CBDC is a digital representation of a country's currency. It does not constitute a currency in its own right. Secondly, CBDC is backed by monetary reserves to support its value, And it is therefore considered risk-free. And thirdly, it is, of course, issued centrally by a central bank or other monetary authorities. And therefore, it creates a direct central bank liability. And that is important. Put another way, CBDC is not e-money. And I think um, Yasmin will talk about this a little bit more. And it is also not privately issued cryptocurrency. And although CBDC has certain similarities with stable coins, it does not display some of the other deficiencies that are normally associated with stable coins. Um, And I think, Yasmin, you were going to say a few things about e-money and and crypto, I think, in this context.
2: Yes, thanks, Suzanne. I think that's a really good explanation into the the fundamentals of CBDC. So I think, firstly, why is it not electronic money? Electronic money, otherwise known as e-money, is is monetary value, which is stored electronically, uh, issued on receipt of funds, um, and it's used to make a payment transaction and accepted by a person other than the issuer. One of the defining characteristics of electronic money is that it must be issued on receipt of funds. This means that once cash is received by the issuer, it is exchanged for e-money. However, CBDC is not generally exchanged for cash. It's issued as an exchange for value and is cash in itself. Interestingly, the Bank of England does recognise the overlap between electronic money and CBDC. um, And the central bank can be the issue of e-money itself. Um, And there are these interesting ideas of synthetic CBDCs, which are essentially prepaid like e-money. But the current view of the Bank of England, is that CBDC is not e-money. And then secondly, how does it differ to cryptocurrency and stable coins? Although CBDC would be a digital currency, it would be fundamentally different to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ether. Many crypto assets um, are privately issued and not backed by any central entity. They are decentralized. They are not considered as a currency or money because they do not perform the essential functions of money, uh, as, as most regulators uh, say. Money needs to be a store of value, i.e. transferring purchase power from today to the future, a medium of exchange, i.e. make payment of goods and services, uh, and a unit of, a unit of account, i.e. to measure the value of a particular good or service. But cryptocurrencies and stablecoins are perceived as too volatile to be a reliable store of value. And they're not widely accepted as a means of exchange, uh, except for obviously El Salvador. So they are not used as a unit of account. So that's the fundamental difference between a CBDC and a cryptocurrency and a stablecoin. So I think whilst I'm I'm speaking, I think it would be really important to maybe discuss What the drivers are of CBDC, Suzanne? Perhaps you can kick us off on that point. Yes, of
1: course. Um, What are the drivers? Well, let let me put it this way: we have seen over the um, well past years, really, an increasing number of privately issued stablecoins entering the market, and some say that it was the stablecoins that have actually been the catalyst for the introduction of centrally issued digital currency. But there are, of course, some some other benefits that are commonly associated with CBDC, be it the facilitation of faster and cheaper payments, making payments more secure, financial inclusion, etc. But ultimately, I would say the drivers depend very much on the specific objectives pursued by central banks and governments in their jurisdictions. So, it is possible to introduce CBDC only for international payments or purely in a wholesale context. So, for example, you could have CBDC for payment, clearing, and settlement purposes and for use solely by central banks, credit institutions, and the largest financial institutions. Or, on the other hand of the spectrum, you can have. Um, a general purpose CBDC that is designed for use in the retail market and by ordinary consumers and businesses for their day-to-day activities. So, the design and the structure and the operating models will very much depend on what the governments or the central banks are trying to achieve. And on that point, really, I think we've got about, I don't know, 36 central banks today, looking at both wholesale and retail models. And there are some, maybe 10 to 20 or so, focusing solely on retail use. And Delvia, I think you will talk a little bit more about why CBDC is increasingly gaining traction around the world and what the drivers are for um, the current CBDC projects that we are seeing.
0: Uh, Yeah, thank you, Suzanne. So CBDCs have some very obvious advantages. Most of all, It can make cash incredibly secure. So there's no real insolvency risk, or there's there's far less of an insolvency risk if you hold your uh, cash with a central bank than if you held it with any other financial institution. It can also make payment systems far more efficient and cheaper. I mean, it is digitalised by by definition uh, and it's built in them and it's typically built in a manner which would make payments far more efficient. And also the government can guarantee high security on funds than um, if a financial institution were, for example, to hold those funds instead. Some of the more interesting benefits, I think though, come into monetary policy. So for instance, if you had a retail CBDC and uh, everybody held money directly via a central bank, you could pay an interest rate, which could help to adjust inflation, help to control inflation countrywide at an instant. And that kind of control the government, a government or a central bank doesn't really have over its economy right now, and it could open up some interesting doors. And even more interesting than that actually is uh, this idea of helicopter money. So helicopter money is an idea that instead of paying money in towards um, various different institutions by, for instance, uh, having a bond buying programme, you could instead use quantitative easing to fund money sent directly to individuals in a society. So this would mean that, for instance, every citizen is given a thousand pounds when the economy isn't doing so well. Those citizens would then spend that money in shops and in the local economy, and that would be used to stimulate the economy. And these kind of ideas can be implemented if you have a CBDC. Um, People also talk quite a lot about a cashless society. As as well as the arguments I've been referring to, um, people also talk about the advantages of a cashless society in that elements of the darker economy, um, for instance, with respect to criminal activity, et cetera, can be traced a lot easier using a CBDC, and an effort can be made to, by governments to more easily investigate these kinds of activities. However, obviously, there are privacy concerns there. But the most important concern about cashless society is about how it disproportionately affects the vulnerable in our society. So the FCA recently had a financial live survey, which came out in February, and it had some great stats on this. It sets out that about 1.2 million people in this country are currently unbanked, which means they cannot open a bank account in the UK. And this is typically because of previous credit issues. Even those with bank accounts, the survey sets out that 10% of adults rely heavily on cash, which is the highest amongst over 85s. The FCA has been focusing heavily on policy of access to cash recently, and you can see this in their most recent business plan, as well as various other policy statements they've been releasing. And now, Suzanne, could you carry on to talk more about the efficiency of payment systems and cross-border payments?
1: Yes, thank you, Dilvia. I think you made a really um, interesting point there on the efficiency of payments, which I think is probably the most recognised use case for CBDC. Um, And I think there are probably two angles to it. So you can look at um, the efficiency of payments in a cross-border context and also in a a retail payment system context. On the first point on cross-border payments, I think it was Andrew Bailey himself, the governor of the Bank of England, who said in one of his speeches that um, it can still take as long as 10 days to transfer money to different jurisdictions. And the transaction costs can sometimes be 10% of the value of the transfer, which is, of course, huge. So CBDC, because it provides a direct link to central bank money, it would reduce the involvement of domestic as well as international intermediaries and therefore make the whole cross-border payment process faster and also cheaper. But that would only work if CBDCs from different jurisdictions are linked through a common platform or certain design principles. And I know that um, this, is, this is being looked at at the moment um, in some of the jurisdictions. And I think the Bank of International Settlement is um, undertaking a similar project. And of course, when we speak about it, foreign exchange risk would not, as a result of this, be removed. So that that would still apply. On the other hand, in a retail payment context, I would say that CBDC can add an element of diversification because it just provides an additional payment service outside the commercial banking system as we know it today. But um, on that point, I would say that for the average user, um, they would probably not feel much of a difference but um, the efficiency or the resilience of the retail payment system could be um, substantially increased. Whilst we've spoken now about the benefits or the merits of CBDC, we probably also have to consider some of its threats um, and... Money laundering risk, I think, is probably one of the biggest ones on top of that list. Money laundering risk is, at the moment, um, considered to be extremely high for the use of cryptocurrencies. And this is because of the anonymity and ability to hold crypto under keys or addresses without the holder actually having to disclose their identity. Interestingly, however, because of the blockchain or DLT technology that is underpinning crypto, digital currency can actually provide a high degree of traceability and transparency, something you don't see with cash or other means of payments. So it's a somewhat strange dichotomy of things here that we're looking at. And I think CBDC would face similar issues. It will be imperative that CBDC complies with applicable AML and prevention of financial crime standards. But how exactly this will be achieved remains to be seen. I think it will depend on central bank's models and design principles and possibly also changes to how no your customer obligations will be discharged. Central banks, um, for sure, will not want to handle AML responsibilities themselves, nor will they have the infrastructure or resources, um, I think, to do this. So many will in practice be looking towards other institutions in the CBDC network to perform these functions. There are. Also, other threats, which we won't have time to discuss, but I just want to touch on a couple of more. So I can see very complex issues arising around privacy and data protection. The use of CBDC gives us, you know, considerable access to information about the use of money. It can give information about transaction and spending patterns. And without a doubt, CBDC could be an inroad for governments to manage for example, foreign exchange controls or to seek control over other aspects of how CBDC is used um, by its holders and their financial dealings. So this is um, a a fundamental risk that is associated with CBDC. And, of course, there's also the question, and Dilvir, you already touched upon it, to what extent the use of CBDC would lead to a disintermediation of commercial banks and the impact of this. Would it be a good thing? Where does it leave final customers and those wishing to be able to access physical cash as they do today? And on a slightly different point, um, central banks, in my view, will also want to ensure that the issue of a new type of currency leads to a decrease in the ecological footprint of payments. But because CBDC would be centrally issued and it would not be mined like you're mining Bitcoin and other cryptos, um, this particular aspect should really not be an issue in practice. Great. Thanks,
2: Suzanne. I think it'd be really useful for us to touch on what the UK's approach to, to CBDC currently is and how it will work. Suzanne Dill, I know you both have some thoughts on this. So perhaps you could
1: um, can I explain this to our listeners? I think we've seen a lot of development globally and in the UK, of course. And uh, we look at the UK um, probably in, a, in another podcast more specifically. But in terms of UK developments, as we mentioned earlier, we have seen the creation of the CBDC task force in April of this year. Um, And the task force is supported by an engagement forum that engages with with stakeholders and the market and the industry and the technology forum, of course. So the task force overall aim is, of course, to explore the opportunities, but also look very carefully at the risks of a so-called Bitcoin. The Bank of England itself has been very clear that no decision has been taken of whether or not there will be a UK CBDC. But it's probably fair to say that they're cautiously optimistic. I think it was um, the Governor of Financial Stability, Sir John Cunliffe, who mooted that the launch of a, digital UK, of a UK digital currency it was probable. But as we know, there's at the moment no firm timing at all and still a huge amount of work that would need to be undertaken. In terms of, of publications, I just mentioned a couple of papers. We've seen the March 2020 discussion paper from the Bank of England and that was then followed by the June 2021 discussion papers that looked more specifically at a range of use cases at potential design principles for a platform model. And that discussion papers was very much drafted with the retail CBDC model in mind for use in, in, in everyday transactions. And I think, Delvia, I believe you've you you had you've looked at this in a bit more detail and wanted to say a few things on that.
0: Uh, yeah, thank you very much, Suzanne. So this was a really interesting policy paper, discussion paper was released by the Bank of England, and it set out how retail CBDC or how the Bank of England envisages a retail CBDC would function in the UK. So broadly, there are three main elements. So there's a Central bank core ledger. There are APIs, and then there are these overlay services. So the central bank core ledger is broadly a ledger, as as any ledger works. You write things in, and when money goes in, uh, you also write things in. When money goes out, and this is all owned entirely by the Bank of England, and the Bank of England has complete control over its functionality. This means that the Bank of England records all of the transactions and that means that you have quite a lot of trust in its security. Now, on top of that, you then have APIs, as I mentioned. Now, this allows what are called payment interface providers to access this core ledger. So API technology is fairly widely used at the moment, and it's also being used, for instance, in open banking at the moment for a way for uh, similar entities to be able to access open banking data. Now, what these PIPs will do is provide overlay services. So this means that effectively, the Bank of England has the ledger, the APIs are used to access that ledger, and these PIPs create these overlay services, which are effectively apps or other ways in which you can access the ledger as a customer. So as a retail customer, you'll go onto one of these apps created by a payment interface provider, and then you'll be able to access your money, move it around in this system, which is created in a way that means you have competition between these payment interface providers means they will become more efficient, they will provide more interesting services. And you have that element constantly there. But you also have the grounding of the Bank of England meaning that you can really trust that your money is secure. And that your transactions are in fact taking place. This moves me on to my next question for Yasmin and Suzanne. I was wondering, what is the CBDC model worldwide and have any been launched already?
1: Um, Thanks, Sylvia. On that question, again, as we mentioned earlier, there is no uniform CBDC model out there. And CBDC is very much a question of national approach with the design features being driven by local policy and public policy objectives. So at international level, it's probably worth mentioning the work that is being undertaken by various organisations. So first of all, we have the Bank of International Settlement that is currently looking at the interoperability of CBDCs for cross-border payments, and we touched upon that earlier. We also got the European Central Bank, that has now commenced the investigation phase for the design and the distribution of a digital euro. And it'll be interesting to see how this develops. And I should probably also mention that G7, who have reiterated their position that no global stablecoin project should be operating until it adequately addresses the relevant legal, regulatory and oversight requirements, including the need to be energy efficient. And I think this provides a bit of a backdrop also for um, existing CBDC projects. And on your second point, yes, we have several countries that are actually currently piloting CBDCs, um, including China, South Korea, Thailand, I think the Ukraine and also Sweden. So um, Yasmin, I think you've looked around as well and um, identified some of the interesting projects that are currently ongoing and some of the jurisdictions.
2: Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. So I think firstly, China, China's digital yuan is pro- probably the most advanced of the several CBDC initiatives that are developed worldwide. Um, the PBOC has been working on their on their CBDC program since 2014, and um, though it's obviously released few details until last year, um, and some crucial aspects like estimated launch timeline remain undisclosed um goldman sachs analysts have actually predicted that digital yarn can account for 15 percent of the total consumption payment in 10 years so it's really fascinating and i think there's lots of questions about the currency features so far Um, and i think these will determine how different it will be from current forms of digital money that already exist then if we look at the us um the us hasn't um put together any formal plans to launch CBDC. It is something that it is clearly considering. Um, The Fed wants to remain on the frontier of research and policy development regarding CBDCs. It's assessing the opportunities and challenges for digital currency to complement cash and other payment methods. Uh, I believe last year, the Fed announced that it was collaborating with MIT to research a digital currency designed for bank use. Um, the project is intended to assess the safety and efficiency of CBDCs. However, um, it's clarified that the collaboration is only to help understand the limitations of technology and is not developing a prototype CBDC for the Fed to issue. And I think finally, in the Indian, the Indian Parliament has been considering a government introduced bill that would ban private cryptocurrencies in its upcoming budget session. Okay, great. So we've obviously explored a lot in this podcast today around what CBDC is, how it differs from other um, kind of payment mechanisms currently in place, uh, how the UK will implement CBDC as well as well as other jurisdictions, and what the drivers are moving forward. So. You know, the coronavirus has inevitably played a role in central banks giving serious thoughts to launching uh, CBDCs, and the importance of um, kind of digital alliance has been emphasised consistently from regulators. The UK HM Treasury and the Bank of England have also announced the CBDC task force consisting of the CBDC Engagement Forum and the CBDC Technology Forum to further the UK's work on CBDC since its March. 2020 discussion paper. Just kind of finalizing this discussion, um, Dill and Suzanne, what do you think are going to be the biggest developments on the CBDC front over the next 12 months?
0: Thanks, Yasmin. So I'll, I'll go for the low hanging fruit. The Bank of England's recent discussion paper on digital money actually looked at some, actually looked at the potential of CBDCs in the UK in quite a lot of detail. In particular, it looked at the public policy uh, objectives, as well as some of the implications for general macroeconomic stability and the regulatory environment. There are also some obvious developments that are going to come through off the back of it, including the creation of these so-called panels. who will be looking at the development of CBDCs and looking to take it forward in the UK. Suzanne, what, what were your thoughts?
1: Yeah, um, I think CBDC for cross-border payments probably is the most obvious use case. But retail CBDC, if it does get adopted, could actually be a a bit of a game changer. Although I think it's unlikely that it would make a noticeable difference to the average user on a day-to-day basis. On a global level, well, I think it'll be interesting to see how public policy objectives will ultimately translate into different models. And I think we will see clearer versions for the underlying architecture emerge. And two aspects um, will probably dominate the debate in in that regard. I think one is privacy concerns. And the other one is actually the relationship between public and private sector institutions and the design and the implementation and ultimately operation of CBDC models. Given, given the enormity of the task and the enormity of the decision, really, I would say it is definitely not about winning the race, but making sure you run it well and you get it right, because there will on, only be this one opportunity to do it. And um, it'll be really, really interesting to see how this all evolves within the UK and on a more international level. Great.
2: Thanks both. I think this has been a really interesting
1: discussion and I think
2: we've covered a lot of ground. I'm looking forward to um, having a further podcast where we discuss the UK approach specifically. Um, Perfect. Thanks everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed our discussion today. If you want any further details around this topic or any of the points we have discussed specifically in this podcast, you can contact Suzanne, Dilbert, or myself, and our details are linked below and on our FinTech Bytes webpage. We also frequently publish thought leadership on this area. Alternatively, you can visit our FinTech webpage and Twitter page, which is linked below. Thanks for listening and take care.